All right. Well, last week, you might remember, we uh, finished up Genesis chapter 1, and we didn't have a whole lot of time at the end to tie up the knots about the image of God and what, it, what does it mean that man is made in the image. Well, good news, chapter 2 is all about that. Uh, chapter 2, some people call it a second creation story. Uh, there are even people like a lot of some of my professors at Florida State, uh, Bible professors, who weren't, in, weren't typically believers in the Bible. They just were professors of it. Um, they thought that it was actually a contradictory story to the one in Genesis 1. Like, like the editor of Genesis couldn't decide which one was right, so he just put them together and let you decide. Um, I'm not sure. I think as I read the two chapters together, and I've read them together many times, as I'm, I'm sure some of you have as well, they seem to me to be in perfect harmony. Uh, in fact, what it seems that's going on is God wants to tell the story of man's creation specifically as a... Um, as in, with a personal touch. You know, Genesis 1 was a little bit impersonal. It was the king on high just saying stuff, and it was happening, like the, the, the king that just makes decrees. Here, it's the God who gets his hands dirty. Did you notice that? He actually took dirt and formed it into a man and then got down so close to the man that he could breathe breath into him to make him a living creature. It's a personal take on what humanity is all about. And so tonight, I've titled this lesson, The Sanctity of Human Life. The Sanctity of Human Life. And I think there are about five ways that Genesis 2 tells us that human life is sanctified by God. We won't be able to do them all tonight, I don't think, although we can try. Whatever we don't do tonight, we'll finish up next week. But all of them are listed there for you in the bulletin, all five of them. Uh, there's a holy day. There's a holy people, there's a holy place, there's a holy covenant, and then there's holy matrimony. Five different things that make human life sanctified. Now, the word sanctity, you've probably heard that before, the sanctity of life. Uh, usually it's uh, a phrase used in connection to like, uh, you know, abortion issues and things like that. Well, it's a much, actually a much broader term. The word sanctity just means holy, the state of being holy. Uh, and you can see from my outline, there's a whole lot of holiness going on in this chapter. It's like everything from the beginning, God is touching it and making it holy. Again, it's a personal touch. Genesis 1, he just said it and it happened, and it was good. And for things to be good is good, right? But for things to be holy is a whole other thing. That, that takes God's special touch, his personal relationship and Genesis 2 tells us God has that, that kind of relationship with humans, but also with all of creation. So y'all ready to talk about it? Okay, well, even if you're not, we're going to. So settle in. Um, by the way, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, when it talks about the image of God being um, restored in people who believe in Jesus, it actually says, the, uh, we are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what the image, according to Paul in Ephesians 4, the image of God is having true righteousness and holiness. Just as a side note, and I think a really something that probably he drew from Genesis chapter 2, where God is just making everything holy around humans. Let's start first today with the holy day, the holy day. Um, chapter 1, or chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, tell us about the seventh day of creation. Now, I've always thought that whoever divided the chapters here made a mistake right here, a massive mistake. Now, we know that uh, the chapters weren't made by Moses. 
or really by God. They were made by editors who translated the Bible into different languages in the, the Middle Ages and then mostly in the Reformation as well, especially the ones that we have in English are from the, the writers of the, of the Geneva Bible, which was one of the first full uh, English Bibles. It was written in the 1500s. So before that, there wasn't chapters and verses like we have them. And so I always thought, man, why in the world would you take the first week of creation and stop it after six, the sixth day and then start a new chapter with the seventh day? I thought that all the way up until this week. And, for, and this week, as I stared at it, I thought, you know, I think they had a little bit of method to their madness. Because it's the seventh day that provides the hinge between God the King decreeing things with his word, his powerful word, and the personal God stooping down to take dirt and make a man and breathe into the man. It's the seventh day, actually, that establishes human beings as a holy people. Think about it. On what day were people made? Quiz. Sixth. The following day would have been, would it not, the first day, full day of human existence. What was that day? The Sabbath day. And so human beings begin their journey in this world with a restful day, with a day of Sabbath, holy to the Lord that God sets apart. Uh, why? Why would that be? I think because God wants to show that human beings can't find real value, dignity, meaning, sanctity without referencing themselves to God. The Sabbath day is all about referencing yourself to God or calibrating yourself back to God, however you want to put it. Putting yourself back into sync with the Lord. Uh, that's what it says. If you look at uh, those verses, uh, the, the Lord rested on the seventh day uh, from all his work. And then it says, verse 3, he blessed it and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Uh, and the word for rest there is not just the word for inactivity. There is a Hebrew word for that. There's a Hebrew word for idleness, and it's not it. It wasn't that God just took it easy because he was so tired because he worked six days in a row. Um, no, because God didn't get, doesn't get tired, right? This was a different kind of rest. This word means basically alternating, different activity is what it means. It means resting from the norm with something that's out of the norm. And so what did God do on that, that first Sabbath day? What did he invite the newly created human beings to do? I think to switch activities from the work, the assignment that he had given them to name the animals to then switching to just enjoying God. So as to remind human beings that we were not made for work, we were simply made to work. We were made for God. To work for God. Do you see that? There's a difference between those things. Some people believe they're made for work or for leisure or for pleasure or for whatever it is, for wealth or for ambition. No, that's not true. The only thing you're made for is God. Uh, human beings are, sanct are sanctified, are holy in their original creation because they belonged to God. He claimed them. And he showed it by blessing them with the first day of their existence with this day of change of activity where they could take a break from what they normally did so as to do something different in reference to the Lord. That's what the Sabbath day is all about. Um, there was a 
a seminary professor back in the uh, early 1900s named um, John Murray. Uh, he's a famous guy, wrote a lot of great books. He was at uh, first Princeton Seminary, then Westminster Seminary. And he, uh, he wrote this great little article on the Sabbath day, which, by the way, is linked on our website. Uh, it's on, our, um, on that page that I made for Bible reading, Bible study. Uh, and I put on the, uh, one of the tabs on that, if, you, if you've not looked at that yet, by the way, go look at it. Because I remember I told you about that a few weeks ago. Go look at it. And uh, one of the tabs is Sabbath. Because a great way to grow in your understanding of the Bible is to devote the Sabbath to looking at the Bible. Well, I put that article on there because to me it's one of the best explanations of what the Sabbath is all about. And he basically goes through a few different points. He says... Uh, first of all, there are several reasons why uh, we're obligated, just like Adam and Eve, to keep a Sabbath. Give me give you those reasons, just real quick. According to John Murray, you might want to write them down. There are four reasons. Uh, he says, first, uh, because according to Genesis 2, 1 through 3, the Sabbath belongs to the order of things which God established at creation. Uh, the Sabbath was not a later invention. The Sabbath was baked in. To the created order. Even God Himself, this is, you know, even God Himself worked according to this pattern. It's amazing, right? And so that's the second thing. The second reason He says is this is, it's based on God's example. God worked six days and then stopped on the seventh to enjoy what He'd made and to invite humans, the last thing He made, to enjoy it with Him. All right? The third thing He says is because it finds its place in the Ten Commandments. Uh, later, when God you know, wanted to summarize what he wanted humans to do, he put it as number four in the ten. Uh, remember the Sabbath day, which, by the way, if you ever noticed, God says, remember the Sabbath day, meaning what? We forget it, but also something else. It already existed before the Ten Commandments were given, right? If, if God's telling them to remember something, they are, I mean, it already had been. It wasn't that Moses just invented this law as one of the many different ceremonial things that Moses did, like sacrifices and stuff. The Sabbath already had a history, and they knew it. And God's saying, remember it. Because human life finds its meaning when you begin to recalibrate with God. And this is one of the ways God's called you to recalibrate it. And then the fourth reason, he says, is that, and this is maybe the most important, is that Jesus affirmed the importance of keeping the Sabbath. Now, Granted, Jesus went around and around and around with the Pharisees about the Sabbath day. But if you'll read those accounts very carefully, never once did Jesus say there's no such thing as a Sabbath day, or I'm trying to get rid of the Sabbath day, or you ain't got to worry about it anymore, it's not a big deal. In every occasion, he is correcting misunderstandings about the Sabbath that they had added into it. In fact, he says about himself, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of it. I'm the one, I mean, he, right there he's claiming to be God, right? I'm the one who rested that day and blessed it and made it holy and invited human beings into it. So those are the four reasons that Murray gives for its obligation. Uh, but then he says, I want you to, he says, I pay attention though to why the day is considered holy. Why the day is considered holy. And listen to what he says. The sanctity of the Sabbath is in its separateness, that is in its difference, from all the other days. And its difference is found in the concentrated adoration of the glory of God. Do you hear that? It's, it's, 
the, the, the holiness of the seventh day is about its difference from the other days. And its difference is about concentrating on the glory of God for a day out of the week. I think that's pretty good. Because it goes back to what we said before. The rest uh, there in verse uh, 2 is not a rest of inaction. The Sabbath day is, just not a, is not just a vacation day or a day to take a rest. It's a day to switch from ordinary things to God. So that you can get re-lined up with God. So it's an amazing thing. Now why am I saying all this? What does it have to do with the sanctity of human life? Well, it has this to do with it. Uh, the, the great question of our day, I think, is this. Can you really be a good person without a relationship with God? Can you be a good person without a relationship with God? How would you answer that? Right. You've you got to do that. You've got to say, oh, yeah, that's the first thing we'd probably think is, what do you mean by good? Well... What if good meant what we were supposed to be? Can you be good without a relationship with God? The obvious answer, according to the Bible, is no. And you get it right here at the front of the Bible. Page 2 in my Bible, you get it. That when God made man, he made him in his image, and he made the next day a day of holy rest where men and women could join in a holy contemplation of who God is, a holy communion with God. So the real answer is no. You can be good in many ways. You can do good things. You can benefit other people without having a relationship with God. You can do all that. But you can't harmonize with the reason for which you were made without referencing your life to God. And I'm telling you, I think that is a very, very important point to make. Very important. Um... I think a whole lot of people, more and more people it seems, have convinced themselves that a relationship with God is optional, like a side dish, like if I get around to it when I'm old and I'm about to die, I'll throw up a Hail Mary at the end to make sure everything's cool between me and the big guy, right? That kind of thing. That is not, that is missing out on the design that is beautiful, Remember last week we saw good, 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 very good. Well, here we see holy, not just very good, but holy. Do you want your life to be holy? You've got to calibrate with the Lord. And I think John Murray has a point. It's really hard to calibrate with the Lord if you don't take time to calibrate with the Lord. And good news, he gave you time. He gave you time. One whole day in seven. Isn't that good? I think it is. Uh, another great question is, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? Okay, you know, if, if you can't be really a truly good person, you know, harmonizing with your uh, reason for existence without a relationship with God, what does it even mean? Does each person get to decide what a relationship with God is for them? That's another issue that I think we all tend to fall into from time to time. Um, I think most people, if you ask them, would say, sure. Why not? A relationship with God is personal after all, and I should get to figure that out for myself and, and come up with my own answers, my own strategies. Mm -mm. According to this, mm -mm. there was, you know, God worked six days, and on the seventh, He gave them a day, and He said, Come and know me. There's only one of me. And at this point, there was only one of us, there was only one man, <laughs> and everything was pretty well defined. And, and I would say, a relationship with God needs to be 
well-defined. Not well-defined by men or women or you or me. Well-defined by God, which makes a whole lot of sense when you think about it. Uh, Any relationship you have with someone needs to be defined by the two people in the relationship, right? It shouldn't be defined by someone outside of it. Well, in our relationship with God, he is definitely the heavy. <laughs> He's the big one. You know, we are the, we are the small one. He gets the most say, all the say, in how our relationship with God ought to be. And so uh, I think there's just a whole lot of sanity about human life that we can gain if we'll really think about what the Sabbath day means. Uh, you know, it used to be that people, and I'm not trying to make this as a speech for the good old days, because these good old days I didn't even live through. This is a long time ago. Some of y'all may have lived through it. I don't know. But there was a time where even in civil society, yeah, that's not, it's not good. I'm sorry. Yeah, Jan is always good for telling me, stop. No, yeah. That's why I look at her when I say stuff like that. Um, no, that there was a time when even in civil society, even outside of the church, people thought, you know, it's a good thing for... Sabbath keeping. It's a good thing to have things closed on Sunday and give workers an opportunity to pursue God. And you know, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a bad idea. I mean, I know we, we may scoff at that today, you know, blue laws, you know, that was oppressive or whatever. But you know, I don't think they were crazy. And I, and I, Stan, I do that. You do remember that. Okay, good. Well, I thought maybe, and there's a few still around, maybe, maybe things about like liquor sales and stuff on Sunday. There's a few things that are remnants of that. But there was a time where that was more vast and more intentional, and I don't think they were crazy. And I think if I look at our lives today, full of busyness and hurry and distraction, I think maybe they were smarter than we are. Now, Jesus tells us there is a very legalistic way to approach the Sabbath, and we got to avoid that. Jesus was against the Pharisees in that way. Uh, But keeping the law of God is not legalism. Keeping it in order to earn God's favor is legalism, or adding to it your own rules is legalism, but trying to just keep it isn't legalism. You know, Uh, listen to John Murray again. This is good. This is about the Sabbath. Uh, He says, Why should an insistence on Sabbath keeping be always considered legalism and Pharisaism? This charge, this is very hard. Listen, this charge can appear plausible only because our consciences have become insensitive to the demands of holiness which the Sabbath day entails. The charge really springs from a failure to understand what is the liberty of Christian people. The law of God is the royal law of liberty and consists in being captive to God's word and his law. All other liberty is not liberty, but the servitude of sin. (laughs) Uh, And he goes on in this article, and you should go read the article, it's again linked on our website. He goes on to say, does anybody say that if you're careful to keep the commandment, do not commit adultery, you're being a legalist? (laughs) Or if you're careful to keep the command to not kill, well, you're a legalist. If you're really against all murder, what a legalist. Why in the world do we do that about the fourth commandment when it, there's so much life in it? There's so much blessing in it. I care about this a lot, and it's something of a hobby horse for me, and y'all know it. But, um, but for me, it's been my whole life. God has really um, just helped me uh, through the Sabbath day, and I care about it a lot. And, and, I, and I want to see 
God's people get back into it. And so that, that's the heart behind um, all that I say all the time when I talk about this. Not trying to condemn, not trying to be a legalist, but, but saying that, man, if it's worth keeping the command not to murder, it's worth keeping the Sabbath day holy. Right? Yeah. All right. That is the holy day. Now, secondly, holy people. God didn't just want a day. He wanted people to enjoy that day with. Look at verse uh, 4 all the way uh, down to verse 7. I love this. I love how it describes the way God created humanity. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain, there was a mist going up over the land and watering the face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living creature. Isn't that great? In chapter 1 again, it was God saying, let there be man. Boom, man. Which is cool too, in a way, because it shows God's awesome power. But this shows, you know, God had a personal touch that he wanted to impart to the man. He goes even so far as not only to form them by his hands... But he goes so far as to breathe life, a special kind of life. When it says the breath of life, the word breath, if you don't know in the Bible, is the same as the word spirit and the same as the word wind. All those are the same word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so when it says the spirit of God or the Holy Spirit, it literally says the holy breath or the holy wind or the Holy Spirit. Uh, God's breath and God's spirit, God's wind are all the same thing. And so you could translate that, God breathed his spirit, capital S, into man. And therefore man became a living creature, a special kind of living creature. We might call that he became a soul. Uh, this is the teaching of the human soul. The human soul. Uh, animals don't have a soul like this. Uh, even angels, the Bible doesn't even say angels received this kind of breath of life to become a living creature. This is only human beings. Why do you think God did it that way? Why do you think human beings got that special touch and breath to set them apart? Sure, yeah, there you go. Yeah, God, it was God's good pleasure to do so. Certainly that's the ultimate answer. Yeah, doesn't it tie them down? Doesn't it tie them to God with a special bond? I mean, it's almost like your children, you love them, and part of the reason you love them is they got your blood in their veins, and you look at them and you see yourself because they look kind of like you in good ways and bad ways sometimes. They act like you, they talk like you, all that kind of stuff. You love them more because of that bond. God invested human beings with a bond with him by giving them his spirit to create their soul. There's a lot of talk in our culture about, is human life valuable? Isn't there? Whose life matters? Well... Obviously, the Bible would say every one of them matters. But the Bible adds to that. Why does human life matter? And it gives a God-centered answer. 
and not just a human-derived answer. From a, from, a non, from a perspective that doesn't accept this story, for, let's just think about this for a minute. If you don't believe this story, maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe somebody's watching or listening and you don't believe that this story is real or true. What answer would you have to give to the question, why is human life valuable? Why does it matter? Right? We kill chickens and eat them. Cows and we eat them. Why shouldn't we do that to human beings? Beyond the fact that it's gross. What's the reason? What's that? Two people at once. Conscience? Conscience? Okay. Yes. Certainly. There's something in your conscience that tells you not to do that, which we're glad that that is there. (laughs) Yeah. I think the point is, if you don't believe in God, I don't know how you have an answer to that question. Now, you probably do have an answer to that question. I don't want to insult someone who doesn't believe in God. I'm sure they would have an answer. But I would argue their answer would contradict their non-belief in God. That they would give me an answer, and it would they, for a moment they would sound like a believer. And then they would go back to sounding not like a believer again. Because I think the only way to believe human beings are special, different, protected, uh, valuable, every single one of them, not because of any... It's not some humans more valuable than others. The only reason for that is because there is a God who did, in fact, breathe a breath, a spirit, into them and create them in his image. And because he created them in his image, they really matter. They really, really, really matter. Way more than sometimes we think, you know. I think as, as people, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to... There's certain people that we know. We love them. We know them. We have, we, everybody has their circle. I was told one time that everybody has about ten people that they know, love, and trust really well. And outside of that, you have another circle maybe of acquaintances, and then out of that, everybody's a stranger. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I thought it was an interesting thought. Uh, at any rate, whether that's true or not, it, everybody admits you've got people you know and love, and then there are strangers. Isn't it easy to look at the two differently? Uh, with, we can look at a stranger and see almost like an alien sometimes. We, we can see someone that just doesn't, maybe doesn't have the same worth as us. We can do that in so many different ways. Um, so, so much of human history is the sad tale of that being played out. Well, this tells us, no, remember I said last week, God didn't make human, humans according to their kinds like he did the other creatures. It didn't say that about humans because there's only one kind of human being. Uh, Paul says every person came from one blood. That's the way he puts it in the book of Acts. One blood. And, and this is the proof of it. There was one man created at first. One singular human being, Adam. And in that man, God breathed the breath of life. And that breath has come down to all of us from Adam. Human dignity. Human value. Human worth. If we say humans have value only because we all get together and agree that we have, they have value, what's the danger in that? Yeah, what if the opinion changes? It can't just be derived from just we got together and agreed. Right? We, we, yeah, and we really can't agree on it. We, I mean, the agreement really isn't even there anyway. But we, we sometimes think that it does. You know, we, we sometimes think that's where it comes from. It's like we just all agree to 
protect each other because, well, it's in our best interest and everybody's best interest is to have peace. If that's the only reason, that's a thin reason. There's not a lot protecting you from, from murder and death and all the rest if that's the only reason not to murder. But this reason in Genesis, that's a, that's a big old wall. And that's why later in Genesis God says anybody who crosses that wall will die. You know, if people kill people, they will die. God says. And we'll read about that when we get to the story of Noah. Because God has created this giant wall um, that is called his image, his breath, his likeness, which invests to people a certain holiness. Another great question today is, at what point does the human life become valuable? Isn't that an important question? At what point does it become valuable? Is it when the heartbeat starts? Is it when the baby is born? Is it five years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 18 years old? At what point? Does it cease to be valuable when it starts to break down in old age? Does it cease to be valuable? <laughs> Does it, yeah. Is that good or bad, Jan? I can't tell whether you're giving me the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, does it, when someone starts to lose their mind, do they cease to be a valuable person? I mean, who gets to make these decisions? These are serious issues, right? Uh, issues that are debated constantly uh, in our culture and other cultures around the world. We have got a really good answer. Human life is valuable from the moment it starts. And it's valuable all the way to the moment it ends. Amen. That's right. And there's nothing that changes its value. Uh, a person committing a crime doesn't take away the value of their life. Do you know that? I, I mean, nothing takes away the value of human life. Nothing. The worst person that exists has a valuable human life. It never ceases being valuable. Because the value didn't come from us, it came from the breath of God. Not trying to make a political statement here, but when everything happened in 2020 and um, we were talking about lives, you know, Black Lives Matter and all those types of things, and remember the phrase that uh, it was um, um, George Floyd, I can't breathe. And I don't know, I mean, again, we're not, I'm not trying to make any kind of political statement, but what a terrible thing for a human being to have to ever say, no matter what. Because that breath was given him by Almighty God. And for a human being to have to cry out, I can't breathe, is a terrible business. Right? I don't think that's political. I think that's Bible. Um, no one's life ceases to be valuable ever. And every life ought to be protected uh, God d does give uh, the right to, and we'll see this also in the story of Noah, he gives the right to human government to enforce laws with the sword, he says. And so there, there is a right for capital punishment and, and war and things like that. We'll talk about that when we get there. But human life still remains valuable even in those situations. In fact, those situations exist precisely because human life remains valuable. Right? That makes sense. Uh, do you see how I'm trying, as we go through Genesis, to show you as we go that the Bible has all the answers to the things that vex us, if we'll just listen to it, you know? We, sometimes we get lost in the back and forth, 
And, and, it, and it is easy, too, especially when it starts to become political, because everybody has their political allegiances, and there are right reasons to have all those types of allegiances, some perhaps, and I'm not criticizing that, but sometimes those allegiances can become like any other allegiance. It can blind us to the other side or the other truths that might be out there. I think it's good, whatever your allegiances are, to always keep your first allegiance to the voice of God. You know, anyway, that's a good. That's that is a good point um, because yeah, if we say the image of God is our ability to think really well and and make things, which is part of it, but if we say that's all it is, then what about the people that can't think well? Because there are those folks, right, who who are variously disabled or whatever, and and there are people who can't create or people who can't even walk you know and so yeah it is essential to read Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 because Genesis 2 tells you the dignity is not just in having dominion and having babies and all those kinds of things which is part of it but it's also in just simply having breath you know and so the, the handicapped or the you know the disabled are very much you know dignified and sanctified as human beings and matter you know you know, so euthanasia, uh, so-called, you know, mercy killing, is what the word euthanasia means. Well, that is a, a euphemism if there ever was one. A mercy killing. I don't know who came up with that, <laughs> but it is a very strange word uh, biblically. There is no such thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mercy killing. Yeah, euthanasia. It's it's a tough thing. Yeah. I agree. I think we, we don't have a lot of room for that as Christians, in my view. Yes, Alex? In the early 1900s. It is a sad reality. And, you know, somebody said, I don't remember, I think it was Francis Schaeffer that said, um, in the 1700s, the Bible died. In the 1800s, God died. In the 1900s, man died. And he's, he's telling the story of history broadly, like you're saying. In the 1700s, everybody was like, is the Bible really real? That was when Thomas Jefferson took a pair of scissors and cut out everything from his Bible that was a miracle because he didn't believe in miracles and only read the parts that didn't have miracles in it. That was the 1700s, where, where the Bible was undermined by a lot of people. In the whole, it wasn't just one or two people. It wasn't just Thomas Jefferson. Certainly it wasn't his fault. It was a bunch of people that were doing that. In the 1800s, there was the whole... Is there God? You know, God is dead movement, Nietzsche and all the rest, German philosophers and others, which led to the, those ideas were directly related to the movements in the 1900s, which killed more people than any other time in human history, such as fascism, communism, you know, and a lot of other ones as well. When you, again, human life is dignified because of its connection to God. And so when we don't calibrate with God, we quickly lose our grip on dignity, you know. It is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Bible does go on to say heaven is an eternal Sabbath waiting for us. Eternal Sabbath. And so the reason we keep Sabbath here is we're not in heaven yet. When we get to heaven, we won't keep a day because it'll all be one Sabbath, according to Scripture. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. All of human life is aimed to the Sabbath keeping with God. All of it. Yeah. Uh, the great Jewish scholar uh, Abraham Heschel calls the Sabbath the cathedral in time. Cathedral in time that God built for humanity. A cathedral in time to worship him that would one day give way to an eternal cathedral. It's pretty cool.
I think. See, there I am again, turning it back to my hobby horse <laughs> on the Sabbath. All right. Well, I think we are out of time, basically. So we'll talk about holy place, holy covenant, and holy matrimony next week. There will be a few other things that are, I think, very um, relevant to our current situation in our world today on those topics. Are there any other questions or comments? That's how we'll spend the rest of our time before the kids get back. Questions or comments? Yeah, we, we, we do. Yeah, and it is hard. And, and that's a great point. Um, all of God's commandments are hard. And they're all harder than we can keep because of our sin nature. Um, but our lack of, you know, our not being good at it doesn't mean God doesn't still call us to it. Um, and something worth doing, as my friend Timo Strawbridge says, is worth doing poorly at first. <laughs> Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly at first. Just try. Just start trying. And, and yeah, you're going to, I don't do it really well. And, and, you know, don't be legalistic about it. Don't be overly, you know, stringent. But try to keep the commands of God purely with a clear conscience as best you can, and know that the mercy of Christ covers us. You know, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. I saw Clint and Jan. Jan, ladies first. Spend more time alone, yeah. yeah. Not, not all your time, yeah. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, he didn't mean that, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you got, yeah, you got more time than, than, you got the afternoon and the night and the morning before you come and, you know, at those times, yeah, I think that's a good practice to do. You know, if you are stuck inside all day at your, at your job, maybe spend some time outside. If you're stuck outside all day in the, in the heat or the cold, enjoy kicking back inside or whatever. You know, there's a lot of different ways to create a difference with the day. Um, but remember, it's about God. You know, that's, a, that's the most important thing about the Sabbath. You're right. And I think that's a very good insight by him because, yeah, depending on your life calling depends on how hard it might. It may be harder for some people than others. I mean, imagine, imagine when he was writing when you didn't have refrigerators, you didn't have, the, you know, the grocery store like we know it, you didn't have cars, you didn't. Um, you did everything that got ate and <laughs> worn, you did it. Uh, somebody did it in the family, you know. And so to keep a Sabbath was extraordinarily difficult, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess, is God important to you? Honestly, it's kind of the question. Yep. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, and, and that was one of the beefs that Jesus had with the Pharisees about the Sabbath is you lay unnecessary burdens on people, he said, like you. You don't just let them keep the Sabbath as God told them to. You try to give them all these other rules they have to check by. They had so many Sabbath rules, so many steps you can take, and even beyond that, you're working, you know, so many, you can't operate any kind of machine, and I mean, there's all these little rabbinical rules, and he says, you're, you're putting a burden onto something that was meant to bless people, and that's, that's something I, maybe I'll leave you with tonight, the Sabbath is meant to be a blessing to you, not a drudgery, a blessing. <laughs> um, Jesus said, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And you can see that right out of what we read tonight. God made man first, and then he gave the Sabbath. God didn't give the Sabbath and then make man for it. He made man, and then he made a Sabbath for them. 
And uh, don't forget that. It, God is not asking you to pluck out your right eye to come to church and to worship him on Sunday. <laughs> uh, that's not, I mean, it sometimes may feel that way, but that's not what it is. And the degree to which I think it's that way or you think it's that way, that just shows how far my heart needs to come to get in line with my maker. And it's really good for that to happen slowly but surely. Right? You know, so anyway. The sanctity of human life, holy day, holy people. Next week we'll talk about holy place, holy covenant, holy matrimony. Hope you're excited about it. I'm enjoying Genesis with you. Let me pray.